0: Good morning. Good morning. Dearest Lance, boy, I'm really loud, aren't I? Is there somebody that can adjust the volume? Lance sent me a note last night and he said, so you're, uh, you're ready to speak tomorrow morning, right? Something like that. Lance, I don't remember exactly what it was, but something to that effect. And I responded, I said, you betcha, all the way, I'm in for Genesis 36. And I just left it at that, and he didn't respond. I thought, you know what, I probably ought to clarify with him that I actually do know what chapter I'm in. So if you would, turn to Genesis 1, and we'll get started. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah you have your notes with you, so it should be Genesis 37. That's where we are. Genesis 37, is just as you're turning there, I want to say thank you again for praying for us. It's been tough for Debbie and I to, um, to be away from you so often. We are... Kind of all over the country as I uh, preach in different churches and things like that. So we were in North Carolina last week. That was a real treat. Gorgeous area. Um, What town was that? Uh, Goldsboro. Goldsboro. Goldsboro, North Carolina. Just beautiful. Well, if you're taking notes today, and you might be, there's a note list in front of you. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 37. We're talking about God's providence. Most people would say that this is the chapter about Joseph, and you would be right in saying that, but it's more than that. It's really the chapter about God's providence and how he works through people. And so the title is, as you can see in your notes, God's providence, living courageously in an evil world, while it's God's providence and his plan to bring the nation of Israel, Israel's sons, through all that they're gonna go through for the next, well, all the way to chapter 50. Uh, It's God's plan to take them where they're going, and he's intimately involved with all that's going on. Now, I don't have, since this is the chapter of the varicolored coat, I don't have a varicolored coat, but I have a varicolored tie. (laughs) So that's why I'm wearing this tie today, because we're gonna be talking about that varicolored coat a little bit. Also, I was going back and forth about the timing, the amount of time this message would take, because there's a lot here. And I was going back and forth about, do I read the entire chapter before we do this, because it's going to take up some time. And I thought, you know what, this is God's word. And it lays out entirely what's going on, this whole chapter. And if we if we read it first and then we dig into the chapter, we break it down and kinda take a look at the nuances and the specifics of what's going on, I think we can understand God's providence in a better way as it relates to the wickedness of people. So, if you're not there already, Genesis 37-1 is where we'll start. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the generation of Jacob, Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, that's a high school age student, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back an evil report about them to their father. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a vericolored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than his brothers, all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him in peace. Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers, so they hated him even more. And he said to them, "'Please listen to this dream which I have had. "'Indeed, behold, we are binding sheaves in the field. "'And behold, my sheaf rose up and also stood upright. "'But behold, your sheaves gathered around "'and bowed down to my sheaf.' "'Then his brothers said to him, "'Are you really going to reign over us "'or are you really going to rule over us?' So they hated him even more for his dreams and for all his words. Then he had still another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he recounted it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers really come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them and he said to him, "I'll go." Then he said to them, "To him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of your flock, and bring word back to me." So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, "What are you seeking?" And he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have sojourned from here, for I heard them saying, Let us go down to Dothan. So Joseph went out after his brothers and found them in Dothan, and they saw him from a distance. And before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Then they said to one another, here comes that dreamer. So now, come and let us kill him and cast him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of, the, of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not strike down his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, cast him into the pit that is in the wilderness, and do not put forth your hands against him, that he may deliver him out of their hands and return him to his father. Now it happened. When Joseph reached his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic and the varicolored tunic was on, that, that was on him. And they took him and cast him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. And they sat down to eat at a meal. Then they lifted up their eyes and saw, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, and their camels were bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, going, going to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what gain is it that we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come. Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments." Then he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. Then they sent the varicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Please recognize it. Whether it is your son's tunic or not, And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph was surely, has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all the sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. And so it is. We're talking about God's providence. Joseph living courageously in an evil world amongst his own evil relatives. Have you ever wondered how God's providence works through wicked people for his glory and for our good? Surely you have. You look around the world and you see things going on that are horrific to our eyes. We see people suffering at the hands of other people for no good reason except for sin and selfishness. Genesis 37 is an account of hatred, of courage, of deception, of rescue from starvation and ultimately rescue from God's wrath. To understand God's providence in Genesis 37, we need to till the soil that brings Joseph's hateful brothers to sell him into slavery so that it's God that sends Joseph to Egypt. Do you remember the good old days of Genesis 1 and 2 when, when there was no sin in the world Ten months ago, we started this book, Genesis, and we found in Genesis 1 and in John chapter 1 that by the mere words of the second member of the Trinity, he took six days to speak creation into existence. At God's command, he created light and water, dry land and trees and plants. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the planets, the sea creatures, the birds, and the animals. He made man, male and female in his own image. Do you remember what he named man and woman in Genesis chapter 5, verse 2? He named them man both male and female. As his image bearers, God told husbands and wives to be fruitful and multiply, to rule over the earth and to subdue it, and to have dominion over every single living thing, including snakes. When God finished creating everything, he said that all that he had made was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. In Genesis 2, we found that if God's image bearers rebelled against him, they, as he promised, would surely die. In Genesis 3, Eve's subordinate, the snake, a.k.a. Satan, deceived her into disobeying God. As for Adam, he high-handedly rejected God's plan, God's word, and he sinned against him. By God's decree, they surely died. And in Genesis 4 and 5, there's a long list of names followed by the words, and he died, and he died, and he died, and on and on that list goes. And in the very next chapter, chapter 6, verse 5, we read these words, then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man has a problem. How will God bring humankind whose every intent and thoughts are only evil continually to glorify him providentially speaking what will he do to put those two pieces together because we are in a world of hurt how can wicked man's deeds be utilized by God himself to bring praise to the lips of man for his glory here's how God preached the gospel for the very first time, and we saw it several months ago in Genesis 3.15. God said there's coming a day when Satan's head would be crushed by the woman's seed, Eve's seed. God's amazing grace preserved the Genesis 3.15 seed on Noah's ark. He chose eight individuals to save them from the wrath he brought against the entire world through a global flood. The Genesis 3.15 seed would crush Satan's head. We now know that seed as the Messiah, as the Christ, as God, as the second member of the Trinity. He existed from eternity past, yet at his virgin birth, Joseph and Mary named him Jesus. Long before Genesis one one, we know that God planned to glorify Himself by rescuing His people from His wrath. Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is the Genesis three fifteen seed. In this. His plan includes providentially, think about this, his plan includes providentially utilizing man's wickedness to display his glory. Wow. Acts 2.23 reveals that wicked men put Jesus to death Yet by God's strategy, his own planning, Jesus was delivered over to those evil men by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It's right there in Acts 2. To understand the pattern of God's providence over man's wickedness in Genesis 37, look no further than the wickedness of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God pre-orchestrated his own plan long before wicked people crucified his unique son. You wanna hear something ironic? Evil people thought they did away with Jesus. But God utilized their wicked crucifixion of his son to turn around and save some of them from his wrath. That's providence. That's God's love, that's His mercy. <laughs> Plus, he added another 3,000 people to the church that very day in Acts 2: 241. You see what they meant for evil? God meant for good. I'm quoting Genesis 50 verse 20 "They crucified Jesus, that's evil. Some repented and were added to the church. That's good how does God use the wickedness of people to glorify himself? That's how. I paint this picture of the New Testament because we need that picture to help us understand what's going on in Genesis 37. Joseph is not the hero. Yahweh is the hero. Genesis 37 is critical to the entire Bible because despite man's hatred, his wicked lies and his evil plotting and his vile deception, you know what? We see God providentially navigating the Genesis 3:15 seed flawlessly perpetuated by Yahweh through Jacob's hateful family and with a courageous man named Joseph. Yes, Joseph was courageous, we can recognize that. Genesis 37 is a tale of two stories, one obvious and the other for now obscure. That's going to change. There are obvious details of Joseph's hateful brothers selling him into Egyptian slavery and an obscure account of God sending Joseph to Egypt to save his brother's lives. The Jacob's family is a masterfully crafted narrative of irony. By the end of Genesis 50, God's primary purpose is obvious and the brother's evil plot fades into obscurity. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil in Genesis 37, ironically again, God meant their evil for good to keep many people alive, Genesis fifty twenty. Let me tell you what Genesis 37 is all about. It should be there in your notes. As you faithfully serve the Lord, do not be alarmed by obstacles or persecution. Be courageous. You will never be prevented from fulfilling God's providential plan in your life. He will not take you one day sooner than he had planned from eternity past. Well, as our loving pastor would say, that's just the introduction. We heard that this morning, didn't we? I'm glad we have three more hours to go. (laughs) Our text today reveals three scenes that compel you to live courageously in an evil world. First, Courageous obedience, then creative plots, then cunning deception. The first scene demonstrates courageous obedience, courageous obedience in the first scene. That would be verses 1 through 17. In Genesis 37 too, we see an introduction to Jacob's son, sons, plural, beginning with Joseph. As I said, a high school-aged boy, a 17-year-old. And in verse two, we read these words. These are the generations of Jacob. You've heard that word in Hebrew several times from up here, the Toledote, It's the final one in Genesis. Joseph, when he was 17 years of age, was pastoring a flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back an evil report about them to his father, Genesis 37 through 50 is a record of the generations of the sons of Jacob. The Apostle John refers to these men in the book of Revelation chapter 7 as the tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel. These are they. In verse 2, Joseph is with at least four of his half-brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. As a 17-year-old, we see Joseph shepherding a flock of animals. Put this in perspective. What happened 13 years later? That same Joseph is the ruler over Egypt, shepherding the most powerful nation on the planet. Talk about God's providence. Verse 2. It was Joseph and his older brother's responsibility to feed and to protect the flock. It's clear that Joseph was the only one of the five brothers truly shepherding and caring for the animals because the other guys were up to evil. They were doing something that was not shepherding or caring. Verse 2 shows us Joseph's first act of bravery in an evil world. Though Moses doesn't give us all the specifics, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher were misbehaving. Whatever they were doing led Joseph to, to courageously bring back a bad report about them to their father, Jacob. That word for bad there is the Hebrew word ra. That word appears again when we look at the name of Potiphar later in the story. Ra, it, it's often translated in the Bible as evil. As a courageous shepherd, Joseph informed his father about his brother's evil deeds. While they should have been shepherding a flock, they were up to no good. This isn't tattletaling. Oh, moms and dads, don't we know when tattletaling is going on? That's not what's happening here. He's bringing back a courageous report so dad can shepherd his kids. The rest of the chapter reveals the extent of their evil deeds. The brothers needed some fatherly discipline to protect them from future harm. Sadly, nothing is said about Joseph shepherding, excuse me, Jacob's shepherding his sons through their sin. We know their eldest brother, Reuben. We we know that he committed incest or adultery with his dad's concubine, referred to here as his wife. In Genesis 35, he's a word picture of Romans 124, a man given over to the lusts of his heart. Now, these four sons, their lives are described in Romans 1.28-32. Dads, don't miss this. When you fail to consistently discipline your kids, you know what? They notice, and they're gonna test you to your very limits. How far can they push you Joseph's brothers learned to suppress the truth, Romans 1. They were filled with wickedness and greed and evil and envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're liars. (laughs) I find it fascinating in Genesis 42, they tell Joseph, we're honest guys. Yeah, yeah. They were slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, and disobedient to their parents. In verse 3, the scene drastically changes. No mention of Jacob shepherding his sons through their crisis. What happened to the report? I wanted to read about the report. How did dad deal with that? Did he go down line upon line, detail upon detail with those boys? No, no. He simply loved Joseph more than all his sons, every single one of them. We say, well, what characteristics did Joseph or Joseph display that would cause Jacob to make Joseph his most favored son out of all the eleven? Verse 3. Here's his reason. He's Rachel's eldest son. Oh, that makes sense the son of his old age. No mention about loving Joseph because of his courage and faithfulness as a protective shepherd. Well, lest we accuse Jacob of favoritism or partiality. Let's be reminded again from Genesis 35, 22. Shall we not remember that his eldest son, Reuben, forfeited his birthright when he committed adultery? Uh, shall we say incest with his dad's concubine? Bilhah? You you really think he ought to be the one with the birthright? I think Jacob made a right decision. Genesis 49.4, because of his sin, Jacob reproved Reuben's birthright. Should I say removed it? What What about Joseph's handmade tunic that his dad made for him? It was a, um, the, the language here, we're not sure it was a varicolored tunic, but what we get out of the language is that it was, a, it was a tunic, it was a garment that went from wrist to ankles, probably up to his shoulders, of course, over his shoulders. There was no other garment like that. It could have been varicolored. Could have looked like my tie. The thing is, he stuck out like a sore thumb. Nobody else had a tunic like that one. Joseph probably wore it Every single day for everybody to see, I'm special. You could see that thing from a mile away and know it's Joseph wearing it. You need proof? Look at verse 18. We'll go there in a minute. Verse 4 The brothers saw that their fathers loved him more more than his brothers. The grammar suggests that they repeatedly kept seeing. They repeatedly looked at it and took notice of his love for Joseph, way beyond his love for his brothers. They couldn't escape it. Like that coat stood out, his love for Joseph stood out. So Joseph has the surpassing father's love, a stunning coat, He's got the birthright once held by his brother, Reuben. So, they hated Joseph, and they couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. Some of your Bibles might say peaceably. Uh, That's a good term, because the Hebrew word, you might recognize it, shalom. Shalom means peace. They couldn't speak with him with peace. They refused to speak with him, except for terms of ugliness and hate. Grammatically, Their hatred was continuous. They constantly despised him, and everybody knew it. Knowing of his brother's sustained animosity, Joseph takes his second act of courage. He didn't care they hated him. He's going to shepherd. That's what he does. His second act of courage, which clearly shows that they knew, that he knew, that it would even make them more berserk in verse 5. The grammar in verse 5 is repetitive. The words he told, it's fascinating, uh, can be translated, he kept on telling them his dream over and over again. He wanted them to know what what he saw. But first, verse 5, Moses prepares you for his brother's reaction to the dream prior to reading the reason for their raging in anger. The obvious story is that these brothers despise Joseph. The obscure narrative ought to bring us to our knees in praise of God for his mercy. The ambiguous storyline is that God is in the details, utilizing their hatred. (laughs) Here's how. Uh, To save them from the famine in Egypt 22 years later. The psalmist would say, Selah. Think about that, ponder on that. God's using this situation to save them from starvation 22 years into the future. That's God's providence. A word of caution about dreams in the Bible. We need to remember this. Dreams in the Bible are descriptive, they're not prescriptive. The Bible depicts dreams, but it doesn't prescribe us to interpret them with some mystical, unbiblical meaning. We're privileged to see the inside story of how God used a dream in an individual way and we're going to see it unfold as we spend the next several weeks in Genesis. God communicates to you via his inerrant 66 books of the Bible. If you want to know his will and how to carry it out, search the text. You've heard it said, if you want to hear God speak out loud, open your Bible and read it as loud as you can and you will hear God speaking. Now, I want you to watch Joseph's courage in the face of evil. Look at verse 6. Joseph's courage in the face of evil. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. Listen, the word listen there in the Hebrew language is an imperative. There's an exclamation point at the end of his statement. Joseph politely demands his vicious brothers, please, you must listen to this dream that I've had. He knows the inside story. And he wants to tell them and warn them, encourage them. His dream introduces God's obscure plan for the family. Look at verse seven. Indeed, behold, that's that word we looked at before, hene, look, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, that's another Hanae. Look, my sheaf rose up and also stood upright. Behold, look, Hanae, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to my sheaf. The sheaf's plural bowed down to the sheaf, singular. Joseph's recounting of the dream is God's way of telling his brothers that he will save them from certain starvation. One commentator explains that a sheaf is something you eat or something from which food is processed. Now, that's providence. The brothers clearly understood the obvious meaning of the dream, but they completely missed the obscure significance of it. Look at verse 8. Then his brother said to him, You can hear I'm almost laughing here. Are you really gonna reign over us? Are, are, Are you really going to rule over us? Come on, Joseph. So they hated him, even more for his dreams and for his words. His brothers used a couple of key words, really important words in their interpretation. The words reign and rule Reign comes from the same Hebrew word for king. You're really gonna be our king, Joseph? Consistent with verse four, they mockingly attack Joseph on unfriendly terms, terms that are the opposite of shalom. The word rule here in verse eight means lordship or govern or dominion. Really, Joseph, you're gonna be our king exercising lordship and dominion over us, you 17-year-old punk? Really, that you think this is gonna happen? Joseph will use their word for rule again. He's gonna use it when they bow down to him 22 years later in Genesis 45, eight. I can't wait to get to that chapter. It is there that God's once obscure plan in Genesis 37 takes center stage as the obvious meaning of the narrative. So there you have it in verse eight. They hated Joseph even more for his dreams and his words. Mocking tones like this would lead most people to give up on their family members. Not Joseph. He's courageous. He steps up for a third round of courage in the face of evil, only this time Joseph brings their father into the kerfuffle. Come on, Dad, why don't you attack me too? Joseph kicks the beehive and the cat furs is a-flying. This is what happens here in verses 9 and 10. Then he had still another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, behold, look at this. I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he recounted it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers really come and bow down before you to the ground? Bullseye, you got it right, Dad. Dad. Joseph's interpretation was dead center. He was right on target, excuse me, Jacob's interpretation. The sun and the moon refer to Joseph's parents, and the stars refer to his brother. Brothers, plural. I love this. In Genesis 41, 32, according to that verse, second dreams and proximity, and I'm quoting the verse here, means that the matter is confirmed by God, and God will quickly bring it about. These two dreams were an indication, factual indications of what was gonna happen 22 years hence. The obscure narrative is becoming clearer. God providentially works through man's wicked deeds to bring about his obvious purposes. Here's proof. Turn to Genesis 43. I want you to see this in writing. Genesis 43 26 we're 22 years down the road now, Genesis 43. Joseph told them, "You're going to bow down to me in essence. Watch this, verse 26. Then Joseph came home, and they brought into the house to him, and then try that again. Then, then Joseph came home and they brought into the house to him The present, that's the brothers, they brought the present, what was in their hand, and what happened? And they bowed down to the ground before him. Hmm. Verse 28. And they said, that's the brothers telling Joseph, your servant, our father, that's Joseph's dad, is well. He's still alive, do you see what happens next? They bowed down to the ground and prostrated themselves. Look at chapter 44, verse 14. Then Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He was still there. So they fell down to the ground before him. The sheaf stood erect. The sheaves were down on the ground. Fulfillment of the dream. Back in Genesis 37.10. Jacob treats his brother's dream as a childish form of nonsense. But he also, having received dreams, we saw many of them from this pulpit. In verse 11, he kept Joseph's words in mind, but his brothers were jealous of him. Oh, what happens with jealousy? But dad remembered. Well, Joseph faces another round of evil in the fourth act of courage in verses 12 through 17. You see, Joseph is an obedient son. Despite his brother's hatred and their jealousy towards him, he listens to his father's instructions and searches out his brothers. He could have said, Dad, you know what? I don't want to go find those guys. Those guys hate me. Not so. He was obedient to his father. As Joseph is about to find out, courageous living in an an evil world can have extreme consequences that last for a lifetime. The second scene reveals dead-end strategies to overthrow God's obvious plan. We see this as as a creative plot, our second part of our outline there, verses 18 through 28. We've already seen there triplicate, multiplied hatred and jealousy for Joseph. Now, from verses 18 through 28, his brothers develop three plots to do away away with Joseph. We'll deal with the obvious and then consider the obscure. Let's pick up the first plot in verse 18. Since we've already read it, I'll just note their statements aren't just unfriendly. They're hasty conspiracy to murder their little brother. They see Joseph from a distance. No doubt they saw that one-of-a-kind tunic from a mile away. He wore that blasted thing every day and just really irked him. They're jealous. He's got the birthright. He's having dreams that depict them worship, bowing down to him. So they plotted to put him to death. Plotted, what does that word mean? It means deceit. It means cunning. It means crafty. They had time because they saw that brother so far away to develop some plans. Plotted, deceit, cunning, crafty. It's one of the seven things that God hates In the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, read it sometime, they say, here comes that dreamer. Bollinger, a commentator, points out that the Hebrew is stronger than in the English. If we were to translate it more clearly from the Hebrew, it would say something like, behold, that master of dreams, there he comes, scoffing at him. Remember verse four, they couldn't speak to Joseph on friendly terms. Verse 20, their collective plot shows that as a group together, they're whipped into a frenzy like sharks attacking a fish. They smell blood and they're all in, feeding on one another's wicked ideas. Dad's gonna wanna know what happened to Joseph, they're probably thinking to themselves. As they develop their plot, they have to come up with an alibi. As Joseph makes his way towards them, that's easy enough. They say, well, we'll say an animal devoured him. Verse 21, big brother Reuben enters the scene, enters the narrative with a plan to rescue Joseph. Plot number two. In fact, Reuben took Joseph out of their hands, saying, don't kill him. Verses 23 through 24, Reuben's plot went over his brothers as Joseph makes his way towards them. So they stripped him of his tunic and they threw him into a pit. Reuben's plan was to rescue Joseph later and to return Joseph to their father. He figured, you know what, when their backs are turned, I'm going to pull them out and take them back to dad and I'm going to be okay. This is where plot number two gets really interesting They threw him into the pit, and they sat down to do what? Have a nice family meal. They're hungry. No mention of Joseph at this point in the text. No details about his thoughts, what he was thinking, uh, or, or what he said while he was in that cistern. No mention of their thoughts or what they were saying in this context. What do you suppose was on Joseph's mind? what about their brothers what did they see and what did they hear during their family meal while joseph was in pain and in agony you want to know we got to go 22 years into the future and look back at their testimony of what was happening genesis chapter 42 please go there with me you could have said back in 37 what were you guys thinking It wouldn't tell you, but 22 years later, it comes out, 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, this is when they're with Joseph, and he hasn't revealed himself to them yet, surely we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul When he begged us, you know what was happening at the bottom of that cistern in chapter 37? He was begging them. Yet, we wouldn't listen. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. That little boy, that 17-year-old senior in high school was begging for mercy. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them, remember Reuben was the guy that said, let's not kill him, let's, um, I'm gonna take him out of that pit, bring him back to dad. Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you? Saying, do not sin against the boy, yet you would not listen, so his blood, look, behold, it is required of us. Now, they did not know that Joseph was listening. He's there, he's listening on for there was an interpreter between them they didn't know that joseph spoke their language there's an interpreter telling him what's happening watch what joseph does he turned away from them and he wept nobody out of all those brothers forgot what happened 22 years earlier and joseph is found weeping for what was said and what was done in that pit. Back to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, 25. While eating their meal, their hatred boiled over. They saw Joseph in distress. They hated that little brother as he was begging for mercy, but they ignored him. Verse 25. Disregarding his cries for mercy, they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming along. Wait, that name sounds familiar. Who's Ishmael? <laughs> Wait, Ishmael, he's the grandfather of Isaac's second brother, as half-brother, excuse me. Ishmael is the grandfather of Isaac's half-brother. What does that mean? They see their cousins coming, and they hatch a third plot to get rid of Joseph. Verse 26, this is plot number three. They, they concoct uh, plot three, and it's done by Judah. He, uh, he monetizes his brother. We're not going to kill him. We're going to make some money off of this guy. So they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. And verse 28, we see that God would, listen, providentially, God would providentially utilize their triple dosage of hatred and sinful jealousy from verse 11 to bring Joseph to Egypt. Let's go 22 years into the future. Genesis 45 this time. 22 years later, Joseph tells his brothers three times that it was not they who sent him to Egypt but god the obscure narrative is coming out watch this verses 5 through 8 so now it was not you who sent me here but god and again he set me as a father to pharaoh and lord over all his household and ruler king over all the land of egypt hurry And go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has set me as Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. It's fascinating. The sheaves bow down. They recognize he's the ruler over them. Jacob interpreted that dream. It was spot on. The obvious story, again, fades into obscurity, but the obscure narrative takes the center stage to become the obvious account of God's plan for Joseph and his family and ultimately the ethnicities of the entire world until the end of the age to save God's chosen people through their Genesis 3.15 seed. Are we understanding providence a little bit better in a wicked world? There's a third scene in Genesis 37, and it opens the door to their cunning deception. A cunning deception. So, big brother, Reuben, he shows up to carry out plot number two. He thinks he's got it all figured out, only to find that it was foiled because the little brother ain't in the hole. Uh-oh. Reuben's in trouble. In Genesis 35, Reuben betrayed God and his own father by sleeping with Jacob's concubine, introduced to us in this chapter as his wife. Reuben's already in a bad place with his dad. Very bad place. He, like Uncle Esau, forfeited his birthright and now. He lost his father's, as is made clear in verse 30, he lost his father's boy, the son of his old age that he loved very much. He, as the eldest brother, holds responsibility for that boy's life. This is devastating. He's convinced he's never gonna see Joseph again. Reuben admits he has no place to go. Reuben, Reuben is the Old Testament version of the prodigal son. Let that sink in. He's really messed it up. So he joins his brothers. What else is he gonna do? He's gotta hatch a plan, right? Right? Come up with a, a, a way to scam their father. If they can deceive Jacob, they can trick dad, The by the way, Jacob, Israel. Remember, he's the chief deceiver who bamboozled his brother Esau, his own father Isaac, and his uncle Laban. Well, then maybe, maybe they can win Israel, Jacob, over through the same means. Just like Jacob duped his father Isaac with a goat skin in Genesis twenty seven sixteen, the brothers dipped Joseph's varicolored tunic into goat's blood. It's ironic. Why did they do it? Well, to mislead their dad into thinking that a wild animal killed his beloved son. The apples don't fall far from the tree. Their dad modeled the art of deception for these kids. We cringe at the pathetic hypocrisy of verse 35. The brothers, Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Jacob's sons and daughters are all gathered around him to comfort him. What a shameful lot, drowning in crocodile tears, weeping with their dad. Yeah, right. Verse 36. I love this word, verse 36, the word meanwhile there. In Hebrew, it can be translated simply as the word and. In any case, it suggests simultaneous action. What does that mean? As Jacob mourns over Joseph's death, for many days, his sons and his daughters try to comfort him. At that very moment in time, Jace, Joseph is concurrently sold into the Egyptian hands of slavery under Potiphar. While they're mourning, Joseph is now a slave under Potiphar. I mentioned Potiphar's name a little earlier. Potiphar was one scary dude. We know that just because of his name. Within his name is embedded the word ra. What does ra mean? Remember the Hebrew word ra? Evil. I'm gonna read a quote from my former pastor, John MacArthur. Potiphar was a prominent court official, a high-ranking officer in Egypt, perhaps perhaps a, a captain of the Royal Bodyguard We see that in Genesis 40, verses 3 and 4. His name, a most unusual grammatical form of that period, either meant the one whom the God Ra has given or the one who was placed on earth by Ra, by evil, making it a descriptive epithet more than a personal name. Big brothers so little brother to a very evil man. But God has another plan. Genesis 37 is a tale of two stories. First, the obvious. Second, the obscure. We've seen the obvious details of Joseph's hateful brothers selling him into Egyptian slavery and the obvious account of God sending Joseph to Egypt to save his brothers' lives. Had they not done what they did, they would have died of starvation. God is in control, not the brothers. God is the hero of Genesis 37, not Joseph, as many would proclaim. Our day is no different than Genesis 6. Today, the evil of man is still great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. While human history marches towards the Great Tribulation, and our culture continues to approve of wickedness that Paul outlines in Romans 1, the world is under God's wrath of abandonment. The question is, what do we do as we understand God's providence that the world is under his wrath? How do we move forward courageously in this world? But the Genesis 3.15 seed is still seeking and saving the lost. Jesus is the Genesis 3.15 seed. Have you turned your life over to him? Has he taken your sin upon himself on the cross? And has he given you, have you received his righteousness because you have none of your own? That God providentially allowed his own son to die on a cross, that, oh, by the way, that he planned before the foundations of the world? So, in the end, the message of Genesis 37 is this. Go back to where we started. As you faithfully serve the Lord, do not be alarmed by the obstacles and by the persecution in our world. Be courageous. You will never be prevented from fulfilling God's providential plan for your life. That can't happen. God has determined the day, the hour, and the second that your heart no longer beats. Until then, be courageous and serve him well. Father, we give you thanks for this morning The word providence, as Spurgeon would say, is our pillow that allows us to sleep well at night. As we look over the lives of the patriarchs, these brothers, Joseph, and what you did to rescue them from starvation, and what you did to rescue us from eternal wrath, we're stunned we don't humanly speaking, understand it in the way that we should? Would you help us? Would you help us to better understand that as we face wickedness in our world, to understand that ultimately you're in control and that nothing can overcome who you are and what you plan in our lives, no matter how devastating it may appear. And for that, we sing your praises and give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen.